0: I uh, want to read this passage of scripture and then preach from a text that God has burdened my heart this week. We actually went through this text on a Friday night at Men's Bible Study, or a thir- Tuesday night at Men's Bible Study, and uh, it challenged my heart and it got me thinking about our future plans as a church family and the places that we desire for God to take us, and more importantly, the places that God desires to take us. This text is a uh, just a brief summary statement of God's heart for the church. I want you to listen to what Peter says. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober of mind so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling and complaints. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of god's grace in its various forms and manifestations if anyone speaks they should do so as as one who speaks the very words or oracles of god if anyone serves they should do so with the strength that god supplies so that this is the aim so that in all things god may be praised through jesus christ in what context in context the church To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, grant uh, clarity this morning so that your truth will affect change in our lives and in our hearts. Uh, Lord, that we would be your church, not a giant that sleeps, but a giant awakened to do good and to glorify your name. Uh, We pray for these aims. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Uh, I love the church. Uh, She has been part of my life for as long as I can recall. I honestly, uh, my parents trusted Christ when I was four. I don't have a conscious memory uh, prior to the invasion of the gospel into the life of my family. I have no, no recollection of life without Christ in the context of my family life. I had the blessing of growing in a home where the gospel penetrated the walls of our broken home and brought transformation, hope, joy, and change that was desperately needed. God used a friendly, hospitable man to move into our lives, and he invited us to come and meet his family. That family was Calvary Baptist Church, the place where I heard about Christ for the first time and grew up hearing Christ. Doug and I had the privilege of spending many years in the same church, and uh, it deeply impacted my life. It was a place where I, in an imperfect setting, heard and saw the gospel, lived out and practiced. I developed friendships and relationships there that indeed shaped the course of my life. The church has been a formative force in my experience. I believe the church is intended by God to be a force that Jesus called together and left here for a purpose to bring hope and transformation to our community. I have a fear though that I live with and that fear is wasted potential. It bothers me in almost every realm. Uh, If you're a Philadelphia sports fan you remember the name Allen Iverson and if there ever was an individual who in the broader scope of his life is an example of wasted potential, it would be Allen Iverson. And I don't say this as being judgmental, I say it as having watched biographies about his life, shaking my head saying, oh man, what could have been? I remember going to a basketball playoff game on Easter, it's probably now about 10 years ago, watched him sink 55 points in a game. It was the record for points scored in a playoff game. I was blown away. But as you listen to the story of the broader picture of his life, you realize that there was so much brokenness and sadness, so much potential to impact people because of the talents that he had, but those talents were wasted. I often think of the church as a wasted potential. And to me, it's sad. One writer a few years back in a song said this The world sleeps in the darkness while the church is asleep in the light. And it should never be this way. Often we as the church lose our way. We get distracted with ancillary things. And the result is that our potential is wasted. My daughter recently was telling me about something she heard in her church about the church being a giant that is asleep, a giant with enormous potential to impact and make a difference. And I thought of our church, and I thought of the fact that we really could be a giant. We have enormous potential by the power of the Spirit of God indwelling our lives. But will it be wasted? Are we willing to be awakened? The aim of my sermon this morning is to awaken the giant. To encourage us through a simple text that I could preach from without a lot of preparation. I did put a lot of preparation in, but I thought to myself, I could have gone through this without a lot of preparation. But out of concern for the task of preaching the word of God, clearly we study and we prepare so that the church can be challenged. The church, by God's design, has enormous potential. And I want to argue this morning, we need to wake the sleeping giant. We need to believe that the church in America is often lethargic, anemic, sleepy, distracted, preoccupied with lesser pursuits. And we often need to be shaken. We need the alarm clock of God to go off and awaken us and to call us to action. When you take a sober look at the task that God has given us and the potential that is present via God's presence through his Holy Spirit in the local church, it will change your life. As you gaze upon it and study what God has called us to do, it will begin to, I think, awaken your heart. At this point in our church life, I am excited about our future as a church, God is rallying people and beginning to give give them a vision of what we can be together. There is a level of excitement that is building as we move towards uh, the finish line of our building project. And for me, there is a level of concern for many of us. Are we ready for what God wants to do? Do we have a basic understanding of our identity and potential as a church? This text jumped off the page of scripture for me this week and captivated my heart and my mind. It calls us to a sense of urgency. It calls the church to be alert because the end is at hand, meaning our window of opportunity is present now and won't last. And I think that's the way that Peter leans into this text. The end of all things is near. And folks, this is written 2,000 years ago at the beginning of the early church, and I believe what Peter is saying is the final phase of God's work of redemption that began in the Old Testament and finds its kind of, High point at the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, and starts something powerful called the local church, the work of God through redeemed people. And it is this final stage, this final work of God that I believe Peter is referring to the end of all things. That when the church age is completed, it's over, and our opportunity to make a difference in people's lives will have passed. A time, an opportunity that is limited and sobering and heightens intensity because we live on the edge of eternity every day. And so Peter, in this text, gives you this very simple command at the beginning. Therefore, in light of the fact that the end of all things is near, be alert and sober of mind so that you may pray. This concept of being alert simply means an earnestness or a seriousness, an intensity of the moment, because there is important work to do. Don't fall asleep. This text, as you read it, should be reminiscent of in your mind of the experience of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Peter is taking what was said to him and sending that message to the church. You need to be alert and sober. It's exactly what Jesus said to Peter. And then he said said this to Peter, do this, be alert, be aware, be serious, so that you can pray. Now, what is prayer? And why is it that Peter, as he begins a discussion about church life, a brief discussion, why does he make prayer such an important focus? I think the answer is simply this. I think he calls us to watch and pray Because prayer is our primary expression of dependence upon God. Prayerfulness indicates deep dependence. Prayerlessness indicates some degree of independence or arrogance. I got this. No, I don't. (laughs) No, I don't. We pray because we desperately need to interact with God and appeal to him for his power and strength to be poured out in and over our lives. And I think the thought here is that that everything is to be covered in prayer because what you and I are involved in is a cooperative effort. God didn't send us here and leave us on our own. God sent us here. God called us here and is with us here and wants to communicate with us here and live with us here and empower us here so that we can do his work for his glory. Watch and pray so you can stand, so you can avoid the temptations and pitfalls and distractions so that you don't fall asleep. And I think that is the thrust of this text. So the focus of the remainder of it in the next three or four verses is on Christian community, the church, its life, its function. It is a summary statement of how healthy churches must live. And so I want to work through what I think are a few very simple and basic commands. The first one comes in verse 8. In light of the fact that the end is near, and in light of this call to be alert so that you can pray, Peter then launches into three very powerful statements and then a closing reason. Above all, he says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. And I think the first thing Peter is saying is just something like this. We need to cultivate a capacity and desire to love each other fervently. Okay, that... that And and in the context, it's interesting. He says, do this above everything else. And he seems to be indicating something like this. If I focus on a heart of fervent love for others, everything else will begin to fall into place. My life will be prioritized. I think it's interesting because the second half of the Ten Commandments focuses on our relationship to others. And when Jesus aimed at summarizing the commandments, that in terms of what is greatest, what has highest priority or value, he says, well, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, what does Peter do? Peter calls us to a, a, a horizontal life of love driven by a vertical life of love so that the love of God drives the love of people towards one another, okay? And we need to, we need to think of it in those ways. Do this with intensity, with fervency. Maintain it. Folks, there is a tendency for love to grow cold, isn't there? I find this in my heart. It's embarrassing sometimes. The things that I am irritated by in the context of relational living. It's amazing to me sometimes. How quickly my love can fade. And then Peter gives this driving motivation. He says love each other above all other things you do because love covers a multitude of sin. Here's the way I'm phrasing that. Love annihilates petty grievances and thinking that divides the body of Christ. Okay, and love will when it's properly understood and grasped will alter your heart and enable you to get along with people that otherwise you couldn't. It is a miracle of God. It is the fruit of the spirit that he unleashes in our lives so that we can live together and get over the petty things that annihilate and destroy. Now, I believe this. I believe that the gospel of Christ is what drives love in the heart of Christian community. When the gospel is understood, when it is treasured, when it is cherished, when it is exalted, when it is held in high esteem, it begins to affect people's hearts. So that John could say this, Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to or we have an obligation to love each other so that knowing I'm loved by God begins to drive love for others. If you struggle with loving other people, then you need to ask yourselves, have I personally experienced the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because once I have experienced that and been overwhelmed by it, it will transform the outward working of my life. I will become a more fervently loving person. And in this context of understanding this idea of love. I I think for most of us often, love is a concept, like a theoretical concept, like we sing about it, right? In this text, and I think looking at gospel-centered love, the love of Christ for us is not a theory. It's not a concept, okay? It has... Clearly defined parameters. It is an active, selfless behavior that finds concrete expression. You can see it in the life and crosswork of Christ. First John three puts it this way: "This is how we know what love is. OK? Having raised some kids, they've occasionally expressed this idea that they're in love. And for them, that concept is very theoretical and usually not real enduring, right? And you understand that twinge, that, twins, that there's, there's a concept there, but it's not really tweaked out. When you read 1 John 3, you find that the, 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 the concept becomes an active, concrete expression that is very measurable. Listen to it. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to Lay down our lives for each other. What happens? I look at the concrete expression of Christ's love on the cross. And it leads to an obligation to fervently display that kind of love to people around me. All right? That's very different than my daughter coming home and saying, I'm in love. Because I'm kind of thinking, I'm not really even sure if you know what you just said or that you know what you mean. All right? Something touched your heart. It's a little weird and you're feeling fuzzy but it's not life-changing. It's changing that day, but it is not altering the rest of your life. Biblical love will alter the rest of your life. It will affect your daily decisions. It is concrete, and if it's not, it's not God's love. First John also goes on to say, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath remover of our sins. His love was a love of rebels, His love is undeserved. It is unmerited, and it is to the, not the least of these, it is to the worst of these. And folks, that's what needs to shake us. While we were yet sinners, Christ showed his love for us, Romans 5, 8 says. Think of the petty things that keep us from loving others actively and get over it. Let God so overwhelm you with the love of Christ that you never face a circumstance that comes up to par with his love for you. Let his love for you inform your love for others and let it drive you to action. Christ's love in this sense is viral in nature. It is contagious. It is magnetic. And I hope that as we begin to move forward as a church family, begin to kind of get a hold of what God wants to do through us, that we turn on the magnet of Christ's love that begins to attract people, to the context of a church where they can hear the gospel of Christ. And that will only happen when this kind of love is filling and thrilling the body of Christ. Now, the danger Jesus points to in Matthew 24, verse 12, is this. In the last days, the love of many will grow cold. It's an astonishing fact that a redeemed Christian can wrestle with weakened love. But it is true. That's why the command is here. Above all, love each other fervently from the heart means that Tim Hof has a tendency not to love others in the way that Christ does. It's not, believe me, it's not a lack of knowledge on my part that I ought to. It's a lack of will and desire. It's a lack of affection for Christ that is causing the giant to fall asleep. When we look at Jesus and when we Look at his love. When we sing a song like, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, it stirs the giant. It stirs the heart of the church. To so say there's a world out there that needs to know this kind of love. Can I just practically provoke your thinking about how to love others? I always think, and I'm just very practical in my thinking about church life. When the service ends, okay, how can I begin to show the love of Christ fervently? Can I just give you one suggestion? I like safe places, okay? So my natural tendency is to duck into a safe relationship when the service is over. And just kind of stay there because it's safe. There's no risk. I'm comfortable there. I know the people there. Can I encourage you, just when people come and desire to know and experience love, I thought of this this week. When people come to a church as visitors, and if you're visiting with us, I'm just, you can tell me later if this is true or not. I think people go into the context of a church because they're longing for something. And they may not even know what it is, but they're wondering if it's there. They're wondering if they'll find what they're looking for and what they need in that place. So may God help us. Just as services end and we begin to fellowship and interact with one another, that we, we, we destroy the sense of awkwardness that many people live with. Stand to the side, waiting. Should not happen. Shouldn't. We shouldn't look for our close friends after the service. We should first say, who can I serve? If there's a brother or sister in need, go to them and serve them. If there's a visitor that's there that is disconnected, doesn't know people, make them comfortable. Just begin to express at a low level the love of Christ towards them and watch what God begins to do. So you know, the way that I do this, if I don't know, there are people here that I, I... Come to a point where I don't know everybody. And there are times I go, I don't think I've met you before. Because it's always, fa- are you new? No, I've been coming here six months. <laughs> That's awkward. That's why a lot of times people don't want to. I, look, I haven't met you. My name's Soza. They might say, well, this is my first time here. Okay, great. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. Is there any questions I can answer for you? Is there a way we can help you? It's it's envisioning just a practical level. We do a lot of this as a church family on a broader scale. It needs to happen here. This is a text about the body of Christ. How is this love expressed? This, This text, I think, goes on to a concrete expression of love. The concrete expression of love is verse 9. Offer hospitality. Notice all these are in the imperative. Love one another deeply and offer hospitality to one another. So, the one another is what drives this text. It's the context of church family and life. These are the affections that are shared with one another for a watching world to see something that they want to be part of or know about. Offer hospitality. I think obviously at one point you have to define what hospitality is. I think we all have an idea of it. But hospitality in the scriptures literally means a love of strangers. A love of unknown people in the ancient world. People would travel. Uh, Hotels would be dangerous places. So when a brother or sister or someone in need was traveling through town, it was customary and required in the Old Testament that you would open your doors, take the alien in, and comfort and encourage them. That was Customary and commanded in the Old Testament. It's a disposition of receiving and treating guests or strangers in a warm and friendly way. It's not a difficult concept to grasp, but it's so hard to practice. Okay, as your pastor, I have for years. How did you beat you up, preached at you? Okay, about open your house, get people into your life. Okay? Does Tim ever experience frustration in this realm? Yes, I do, okay? I do, because God has given us places to love and serve others. He's given us resources, homes, and the scriptures are clear that this is the context in which the love of Christ fervently can be expressed. Folks, if I don't engage in the lives of others in what we in this church call vital relationships, I don't have a context to live out this command. So we we need to practice hospitality because it's there that I can take the gifts of the Spirit and see them begin to work in each other's lives. Because every command in this text is directed towards one another. Okay, so I'm just encouraging you to start to think more broadly about how I fulfill this direct command from God to show hospitality to love strangers my question to you this morning is will you yield to the conviction of the spirit of god from this text offer hospitality and do it i love this without complaint without grumbling okay the more people you have people in your house the more irritated you're going to become i'm just going to tell you that okay cuz people will do stupid things in your house and their kids will be do stupider things in your house okay <laughs> Here's what the text says. It shouldn't be a dutiful expression of Christian living. Dutiful. I had to, or my wife would have got mad if I didn't bring home flowers. That's duty. Okay, it's, it's to be a normal, fleshed-out expression. Folks, if you begin to engage in this, you will find a joy that was unanticipated. I'm not saying it's free from frustration. But you will find a joy because you were created by God for something larger than yourself. You were created by God to be part of a body, of a community, of a family, of a garden, of a house, of a building, of an army. There's all kinds of analogies in scripture. None of them is isolated to individuals. None. It's all about the body of Christ for the glory of God. And when you, as a believer, begin to experience that, you will find a joy that God intended in that setting. In the Old Testament... You could say, what, is the, what was the motivation for joyful hospitality towards aliens for people in the land of Israel? What was the motivation? I want you to listen to this text. After giving the command to bring in aliens into your house and meet their needs, here's what it says. Love him as you love yourself because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Folks, I want you to let that command settle into your heart. We love others because he loved us. I don't have a better reason, and I don't live under the illusion that the attempts at being an example in this regard on the part of my wife and I will change you. I don't live with that illusion anymore. I used to think that would happen. But I realize today that the only thing that will cause us to become truly hospitable expressors of fervent love will be being overwhelmed by the fact that I was an alien. I was a rebel. I was the prodigal, and he took me in. Meditate on that. Think on that. And ask God what he wants you to do with it as he begins to burden your heart with a, an overwhelming sense of gratitude, which I believe always will lead to expressions of generosity, towards others for the glory of God. And you'll see that becomes the aim of this text. I love Acts 2, verse 46 and 47. It says, every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their houses. That's what the text says. In their houses, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor. And the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. I want to be part of something like that. I don't read that verse and say, oh, what a burden. No, to have joy and gladness and sincerity of heart. That is like so, that's up to me. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it's normative in the context of the church. In our new building, we are being driven by these values as we have talked about the layout. We want to become we want to build a location, a facility, a tool, an instrument that is warm and welcoming. So we put a lot of emphasis on having a patio area. We can have chairs and, and a place to serve coffee and the other things that people drink, so that we can share life together. Okay? That, that it's it's a place to gather, to be hospitable, to share community. We want to start that as a church family so that we as individuals practice it in our daily life. Do you see? So the facility is built around what you want to accomplish, not to get a wow factor in terms of visibility, but a wow factor when people come in that there's something unique here. There's something planned for me. My concern, my fear, is that many people seem to think the building is going to awaken something in us. And I want to tell you something, folks, and I hate to disappoint you. The building is going to change any of us, it won't change us. We are interested in building God's church. And I, look, so for clarification, I am utterly devoted to this building project. Okay, I spend more hours there than I like to remember, okay? <laughs> But my, the, the driving thing when I read a text like this is, this is about building God's church, the body of Christ. That's just a facility. That's just a tool where we can set it up to accomplish those objectives more effectively. But it will never change our hearts. Okay? And that's my concern. When we get to the church, we're going to grow more. Not if you don't invite someone to come out and hear the gospel. Not if you don't begin to love people fervently in the context of your daily life. It won't make a difference. It'll attract attention, but it won't bring transformation. Okay, I don't want attention. To me, attention is dangerous. It gives me pride. I want to see God work in a way that none of us can take credit for. To see him fill a house with people because they, they found hospitality there, they found fervent love there, they found people that served them there. May God challenge our hearts. And here's my observation. My observation is that hospitality, if I get this right, you tell me if I'm wrong, can only happen in the context of relationships. I tried being hospital to myself this morning, made myself a cup of coffee. <laughs> It was like, eh, okay. You cannot fulfill the command to be hospitable in isolation. You can't. And I don't think it has anything to do with your family experience on a daily basis. Because we tend to pride ourselves in the context of evangelical Christian, Christianity on being good parents. I want you to know that doing that it should be done because there are other commands that lead you there. But this directive, which is the context for fervent love and the context for the next section, is critical and essential to obedient Christian living that brings joy and sincerity of heart. So I challenge you. I challenge you to want to be part of a church where when people visit, they know that they matter to us before they know they matter to God. They know they matter to us because of how we treat them and greet them before they even know that they matter to God. That's the kind of church I want to be part of. Where the love that is expressed and the care that is given to those that come and see is so intentional and so delightful and so well-planned for the benefit of others that they feel cared for before they know that they're cared for in a way that they can barely imagine through the cross of Christ. That's the kind of church I want to be part of. So may God, and we're working at this. Bill Kennick and I met the other week at the direction of the elders to begin to talk about a hospitality plan, how we can work at our welcoming so that when people come from the driving into the parking lot to getting into the building to sitting down on the service, there's been a message about Christ's love that's been permeating through hospitality. They're strangers, they're unknowns. We love them, we care for them, we, we welcome them, we greet them, we provide for them, and God is glorified, and the gospel begins to work. Since we are often distracted by a lifestyle that isolates, the giant sleeps. The giant sleeps. And the potential is wasted. Because we come or we function in an insanely busy life in fiercely independent ways. And the, lethal, the combination is lethal spiritually and emotionally. It's deadly. The sleeping giant could die. God wants us to awaken it. You know, my brother has an Ace Hardware store. Is that a beautiful thought? <laughs> You're like, so what? Okay. <laughs> About 20 years ago, a new, uh, in the retail realm, a new concept came up called big boxes. They're called Home Depots and Lowe's and WalMarts and targets. Their aim is to take market share from the little guys. And they can. They can squash you. So why is it that a number of Ace Hardware stores, you know, Ace is the place, right? You know that. (laughs) Why is it they have survived and not only survived but thrived? You know why? Because if you work for my brother, there's a rule you come within five feet of a customer, you must encounter them, not tackle them, Phil. (laughs) It is obligatory and essential, and if you don't want to do it, find a different job. Because our survival is dependent upon hospitality. How can I help you? Now, folks, I'll just be blunt, okay? That is for crassly monetary benefit. Okay, now brother wouldn't appreciate me saying it that way, but and there's a lot of love in how he functions. You understand what I'm saying. It's done for money, because we can't survive and make a profit unless we are kind to people. Like, at the Ace Show, that's what they talk about. That's the difference. And Walmart's got it, right? They get a greeter at the door. And you're welcomed when you come in. It's a shame that often Ace and Walmart can be friendlier than the church. Should never be that way. People should come into the church and experience something that wows them in terms of love and affection and care and the attention that is given to greeting and making people feel comfortable. It's part of our responsibility. Hospitality is not a gift in the Bible. It's never in the list of spiritual gifts. It is always a responsibility for every believer. It's fascinating. If you look at the qualifications for elders given to hospitality, given to it. Adjective, they are to be hospitable. It is to be the normative practice of their life that they practice this. Jesus Christ exampled this for us, didn't he? Jesus was so bent on being hospitable that he was accused of being the friend of sinners because of how much time he spent with them. May that May that thought of hospitality just lay hold of us that we become Christ-like in this way. The goal of hospitality is that they know that they matter to us before they know they matter to God. And then the last thought that emerged in this text is the concept of serving each other in the context of vital relationships where hospitality is happening. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. And that is to say each of you should, that is you have an obligation to use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So I just want to say this, that effective service can only happen where? In the context of vital relationships. You can't serve others in your isolated life. So if you if you look around your life, you look at your experience and say, you know what, I have not been spending much time with people. I haven't been loving people as I should. It's probably because you're living in isolation and independence. This text says each of you ought to use whatever gift you have received to serve others. And then it gives a very kind of simple summary statement, okay? Each one, that is, every believer is by God, empowered to do something. They should use their gift. The gift is a gracious, divine enablement that God, by the Spirit, pours out into the life of believers, and it is aimed at, 1 Corinthians 12, at building others up. The goal of that gifting is so that others will benefit. It is never intended to enhance the recipient's life. It is always directed towards the benefit of serving others. And then he says we should use it as... Faithful stewards, faithful administers, faithful managers of God's grace in its various forms. The idea of serving others in this text talks about the mutual benefit that is present in this text and in this command. So God, by the Spirit, gives divine enablements to the church, to individuals particularly, For the benefit of others. So the assumption is that I will be living in such a way with Christians. That that spiritual gift can be expressed in the context of community. Not in isolation. Now. This list of spiritual gifts has two items. And the two items are. If he speaks. And if he serves. And if you read through the list of spiritual gifts. You will find that they always Include gifts of service and gifts of speaking. Okay, those two things are present in every list of spiritual gifts. Okay, and here's what he says: If you if you have a one of the gifts of speaking, and there's a plethora of spiritual gifts that re- refer to speaking, words like knowledge, words like prophecy, words like encouragement, words like discernment, words like wisdom, words that God is giving. If you are acting in that type of a function, if God has given you that kind of a capacity, do it as one who is speaking. What's the text say? As one who is speaking the words or oracles of God. Now, if one of my gifts is teaching the word of God, then on Sunday morning, I have an obligation, as James was praying earlier, that prayer scares me, James, but it's true. We should be speaking in the context of public ministry of the word as the oracles of God to be sure that we are preparing so that we are accurate, so that we can say, I am striving to the best of my ability to accurately represent the word of God. To not stretch it towards what I want out of it, but to encourage you to look at it and say, I see what God is saying. And I think pastor's on it, or I think he's a little off on that. Okay, you have every right to do that. Because this is the final test of anything that is ever spoken by anybody. So if someone comes up to you and says, I have a word from God for you, get out your Bible and test it. That's what the Bible says to do. Okay? But I should be open to hear from God. But it only needs to be tested by this, as the oracles of God. Okay? And then he says, if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides. I, (laughs) you get tired in working with people. Okay, just be honest, okay? And the Spirit of God needs to kind of awaken the giant occasionally and, and, and reinvigorate your heart, reassure you of his love, and point to needs that people have, and show you the joy and sincerity of heart and gladness of heart that you experience because you're serving others. This, this text says if you're serving, do it in the strength that God supplies. Here's the way that I look at this. God will always enable everything that he requires. Okay, everything that God requires, he will enable. Okay, so when he points you in a direction of service, when he begins to fix your eyes on something and you start to say, I'm sensing a burden from God for so-and-so. Do something about it, okay? Ryan and I are friends, Ryan Duvenek. So earlier this week, I called Ryan Number one, we needed help at the church building, and Ryan's a good hard worker. But secondly, I consider Ryan to be someone in a sphere of influence with me, that is someone that I feel, I feel a responsibility for that young man. Saw him come to Christ, along with a number of other people involved, but I feel a responsibility for him. This week, Monday, I was working, doing hard physical labor, and thinking, man, it'd be nice to have a young guy. Ryan's name comes to mind, which had actually come to mind a couple of days before, because I hadn't seen him for a little bit, and I thought, I wonder how Ryan's doing. And as God begins to prompt and take the Gifts that you have, a concern for others, or encouragement, whatever it is, begin to seek out that person and say, I, I just, even on my mind, I don't know if it's God putting you on my mind or I'm just thinking about you or what, but I just felt like I should reach out to you. To, to as the prompting comes, be responsive. Okay, and serve each other, expecting that as I step into a situation, and sometimes it's going to be into situations that are beyond my capacity, expect that God will energize your efforts and do good. It's what he does. But often we never experience that energizing. We don't even need it because we're not attempting anything good or we're living in isolation. I don't need any help to live in isolation. I add no benefit to myself or to others. Gifting says we need each other by God's design to be healthy. It is His the preferred illustration of the church in the New Testament is the body. And the focus on the, on the in terms of the body is its corporate functions, its body functions. Tonight you're going to watch. Some of you probably will watch a football game called the Super Bowl. And mysteriously absent from that game will be teams from Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> when you watch it, okay. There, there are teams there that have superstars on them. Okay? But the teams that make it to the Super Bowl typically don't have the flamboyant type superstars. They have players that are uniquely gifted who understand they're part of something bigger than themselves. And that they it is required that they have those lesser lights present as part of the team. The lesser lights are essential to the work of the team, as is The contribution of the more gifted person. Okay? The team that wins tonight will probably be a team that played as a team, not as an individual. And I would argue in the church that we need to recover the thought that every Christian is gifted by God to make a difference in people's lives. And I think Satan wants to sell you a lie that says your lesser light is unnecessary. I live in the world of LED lights, and what i 'm learning about LED lights is LED lights are made up of, co- of a compilation of a lot of little lights, and the result is brilliant that 's the church. God takes lesser lights, he binds them together and pulls out something that is astonishing and that people want to come and see and As we begin to serve each other, some beautiful things will begin to happen. the New Testament puts an emphasis in the context of gifts always on body function, on community, on the corporate body status. The New Testament does not in any way envision Lone Rangers or what Run-Writer years ago called pious particles. Many would prefer prefer to isolate rather than get involved in the life of others. This is said because it denies the true nature of Christ's precious body that he purchased with his blood and makes the church a sleeping anemic that has incredible potential that is never unleashed so lives are never changed and God is never glorified folks we not only kill the church by our lack of vital participation we also steal glory from God that he deserves may God awaken us just in this concept of all this working in the context of the community. I want to say this, and I want you to think about this. Alone is a dangerous word. Isolated is a dangerous place. God did not call you to be alone. God did not call you to isolation. God called you to community. Remember the thing we used to do as kids? Right? Can't remember the order of it exact, but you know what it is, right? It's the... the, the The church, the doors, the steeple, and then all the people. It'd be really weird if it says there's just this one person. But that's how a lot of Christians live. They live in such a profound level of isolation that they are, in fact, alone in a dangerous place. It's not where God called you to be. God called you to be part of something bigger than yourself so that he would be glorified in what he is doing through a beautiful is the word menagerie work here menagerie of people a great variety of types of people that God is calling together to glorify his name community and together are blessed and powerful words Our potential as a local church cannot be experienced outside of vital relationships. We, by God's design of gifts, are exponentially better together than we could ever be alone. When we stand together, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. But all bets are off if you live in isolation and alone. All right, I think this text is a warning to wake up and to engage for the glory of God. All this happens so that, the last part of verse 11, so that. This tells me this is the aim of love, it's the aim of hospitality, it's the aim of gifting. So that, and I circle these in my Bible, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him, Jesus, be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The aim of the church in its coming together and its living together and its experiencing the power of the Spirit together and its serving one another together is that God would be glorified. The aim of our hospitality is to demonstrate Christ-like love for a world that so desperately needs to see it. But I think it's important that we put the accent where it is at the end of this text so that in all things that you do all of your life, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Because in these last days that Peter talks about, Hebrews 1, 4 says, He has spoken to us in the Son. And the message that the world around us needs to hear is the glory of Christ as a glorious and awesome, powerful Savior who can transform your life and your eternal destiny. This is the message that we are called to share. We need to be careful that we never move from the centrality of the gospel message of Jesus and our desire to make more and better disciples of Jesus in the context of vital relationships. Folks, we have to fight for, we have to diligently maintain a focus on the person of Jesus. That's where this text goes. Everything that's happening is so that Christ will be exalted. Because when Christ is exalted, he said, I will draw people to myself. So the focus of our attention is to exalt Christ in our love, in our hospitality, in our service. The converting work is God's. So we're we're seeing people drawn to Him. Why? Because we're serving people in a Christ-like way. And in that exalting Jesus, and when He's exalted, He says, I'll draw people. I'll take care of bringing them. You just go live like I did. And watch what happens. Let's wake the giant. Perhaps you came today and you are seeking something that in your heart is undefined. You don't know Jesus personally, but there's something about him that you were curiously attracted to. Perhaps there's someone in this church that invited you to come because there is something about them that is magnetic. There's something attractive. There's something you'd like to know. What we'd like to say to you this morning, what we'd like you to know is that Jesus saves. That for sinners of every kind, he is a glorious and incredible Savior who stood in your place, took the wrath of God that you deserve, and offers you hope and forgiveness. That's the aim of everything we do, is that that truth would be known in the hearts of people that don't know it and treasured in the hearts of people that do. That we would love it and sing about it and rejoice in it. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian who has been part of the church and it hasn't been pretty. You're hurt. You're reluctant, your engagement, and I, I hear, I'm going to be honest with you, I fear this for people my age, because I'm older now, that there is uh, a tendency to disconnect because of wounds that have been experienced, because every church is imperfect, and every pastor is imperfect. I've been there, I've been one. You've been hurt, you've been forgotten, you've been disappointed, yes. Don't let the mistakes of other people kill your passion for the glorious work of God in the church. And if you find a perfect one, don't join it because you ruin it. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, those who love their dream of the church, of the Christian community, they want it to be what they want it to be, a perfect place. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community as it is itself become destroyers of that Christian community. They become bitter even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. But the person who loves their dream of the church more than the church itself tends to destroy it. So get over the bitterness, confess it, and engage, obey God. Don't let the disobedience of people become an excuse for yours. And God will do beautiful things. Over the next few months, God is bringing us to a new and exciting location. That new location will be a wonderful blessing. It it brings opportunities that we could waste and potential that we may not realize. Our aim is not to build the building, but God's church. That is what we sacrifice to build, the body of Christ. A facility is just a tool. To that end, if we don't rise up and begin to love and show hospitality and serve earnestly, the place will be futile and weak, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a place where the giant wakes up. And I want to encourage you, it needs to wake up starting today because that building is going to change me. Only the Spirit of God by His truth can change me. But as He begins to speak these truths into your heart, this is what the church is to be. The giant begins to awaken, and God begins to be glorified, and people are attracted as Christ is exalted. May God help us to be His church. Father, as we conclude uh, this season of discussion in your word. We pray that the vision of this text would become the vision of the chapel at Warren Valley. That we would be a church that is wide awake, alert, praying, depending on God, and loving, showing hospitality, and serving for the glory of Christ. Lord, let this be our aim and our desire. Uh, We pray this for the glory of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.